Uh, good uh, afternoon, or good evening, I should say. Good morning. For those of us who are from New York, London, oh, Singapore is the same time zone as this almost. It may be evening. But good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Clay Maitland. I'm the moderator of this panel. Uh, and our panel today, as you can see, is entitled Geopolitical, Regulatory, and Market Trends Affecting Shipping. Uh, I've been warned that time is limited and we're going to try to move ahead very rapidly. So at the risk of disconcerting the members of the panel, and, and I hope that the members of the panel are alert to all of this, I'm not going to give long introductions and I'm also not going to uh, go over all of the things that we all discussed by email over the last two weeks. Uh, I'm just going to allude, I may misquote you, but I'm going to just say a few words about each of you now, uh, including Mr. Batra, who is standing and going to show us uh, some very interesting slides prepared by uh, Evie Drury. Uh, and I'm I may misquote you, but I will at least, I think, uh, open the floor to discussion in, in a more meaningful way. Uh, on my immediate left is uh, Joe Hughes. Uh, Joe is the chairman of uh, the Ship Owners Mutual P&I Club, as I call it. I know that's a misquotation, but it's, but it's the American Club. Uh, there's nothing very American about the American Club, as those of us who, who know the American Club will know. It's a very global uh, P&I Club. Uh, next, Mr. Batra, who is actually standing here getting ready to show his slides, uh, is the Group Managing Director of Drury Shipping Consultants Limited. Uh, then uh, uh, Vincent Lee, Lee Ping Kwong, again I hope I have your name more or less correct in both versions, uh, is the Regional Business Development Manager for China of the Class Society DNV GL. Uh, finally, uh, on the far left, uh, Mr. Wei, Wei Zhuang is Regional Manager for Asia of BIMCO, and finally on the and last but not least, Tim Wilkins, Regional Manager and Environmental Director uh, for Asia Pacific, a very small geographical area uh, of Intertanko. Uh, so we have two non-governmental organizations here, very famous ones, BIMCO and Intertanko, uh, represented. It's a very mixed group of people. Uh, this panel uh, appears again and again at Capital Link. Uh, and uh, it's sometimes called the gloom and doom panel. I hope today it will not be known for gloom and doom. Uh, geopolitical and, and uh, regulatory trends and market trends have not been particularly uh, easy to, to navigate for us in the industry, but we hope today to be able to give a, a, a brief synopsis, a little bit different from what you've heard, of where we see the industry going and where the problems lie ahead. Yes, CO2 emissions, yes, uh, the Paris Agreement, yes, the worldwide entry into force whenever it really takes effect of the Ballast Water Management Convention, uh, the sulfur cap. These are simple uh, uh, considerations, but very complicated for the industry. Uh, Mr. Hughes is going to speak on the cyber risks in general and the implications of cyber attacks. I think I'm correct in saying that. Yes. Uh, I'm shortening, greatly shortening your remit, but given the time limitations, uh, there it is. Uh, Mr. Batra is uh, going to speak on trade protectionism, nationalism, globalism, the new political divide, and whether we might need future sh fewer ships, not future ships, fewer ships. Uh, Mr. Wilkins uh, of Intertanko 
uh, and I had breakfast this morning and we talked about uh, the availability and training of qualified seafarers and maybe the uh, implication of uh, how maritime regulations are drafted and impl implemented and how the world might do a better job uh, in, in not only drafting the regulations but in, in, how, in enforcing them. Uh, maybe the question of a, le a level playing field is the best way to describe it. Uh, Wei Zhuang uh, has raised concerns over data available on uh, uh, available fuel and how that data is arrived at with regard, of course, to the global sulfur cap implementation. And finally, BIMCO generally has uh, been a leader in uh, producing standard contracts as well as clauses for the shipping industry and the flood tide of regulation has had an effect on that and will have an effect on those regulations. And perhaps uh, Mr. Wei can say a few words about that. So there we are. Uh, I haven't forgotten uh, Vincent. Uh, Vincent uh, Ping uh, is going to ask this question, I think, putting words in your mouth, Vincent. Uh, do we retrofit? Do we upgrade? Do we scrap? Or do we purchase new ships? Uh, and we'll talk a little bit, perhaps, I hope, today about uh, something you don't hear so much about as much as we did last year, the Echo Ship. Uh, with that, I would like to turn the floor over to Mr. Batra. Mr. Batra and Brewery, very famous firm of consultants, and I'm happy to say that my company has used you as, as, as uh, consultants in the distant past, uh, has, and I want you to watch these slides very carefully during the four or five minutes that you're going to see them. He said two things that hit me in the eye when I looked at the slides. One is, he said, the world needs to adjust to a new phase of economic growth, which is evidently lower than its heyday <coughs> seen before the subprime crisis of 2008. Is lower demand for shipping the new normal? I hope I'm not going too fast for the translators. I almost forgot. Now, with that, uh, having made a number of serious mistakes and gaffes, uh, I'll turn this over to you, Arjun. Thank you, Clay. Uh, <coughs> thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Kaplink, uh, for inviting me. I have 12 slides, and I was given five minutes, I think. I've used that up already. So I'm not going to figure out. Luckily for me, a lot of what has, I need to say in detail has already been said. I've been, I'm going to take a very macro helicopter view of the global economy and the impact on shipping. Clearly, we, we've been seeing a lot about geopolitical, globalization, et cetera. It's in the news every day, so we just cannot miss it. Clearly, I think what is very, very clear, globalization over the last 20 years has been great economic benefit for all of us, all the global economics economies that have done extremely well. But in the developed world, there is a subsection of society which has suffered due to globalization, and this has had ramifications. We've seen Brexit, we've seen uh, Trump, now Le Pen. There have been lots of uh, TPP being uh, renegotiated or uh, getting out of US and with China emerging as a global leading power, the US-China uh, <coughs> competition, whatever we want to call it. Clearly, this has ramifications on trade. And this is a chart of WTO notifications. 
what you're seeing here is 2016 as a sort of peak in WTO notifications, which is really people complaining about trade in some form or the other. So going forward, trade protectionism is going to be a topic. Next mega trend we are seeing clearly is the digital revolution. It's all around us. We've seen it, we've benefited it. Uh, there's manufacturing technology, miniaturization, all these online platforms disintermediating traditional marketplaces, Airbnb, Uber, we're just seeing a lot of traditional markets being dis disseminated. Uh, artificial intelligence coming through. Yeah, all of this is changing how the global economy, economy is working. Clay mentioned the new normal GDP growth, although in the short term it is improving, but what we are seeing really is global growth trending at a new normal, much lower than what we saw in the first decade of this century. So I think we have to come to terms, growth is going to be lower than before. But actually, another very significant part of this trend is we are having lower population growth, we are using less steel per GDP growth, we are using less energy per GDP growth, and the energy mix is moving very rapidly to clean technology, uh, clean energy, so away from fossil fuel. You can look at the ramifications of this across the board, uh, <clears throat> and I just summarize it in this chart. Lower economic growth, lower population growth, lower steel intensity, lower energy intensity, <clears throat> trade protectionism, digital revolution, all of it, net-net. There's going to be a new normal, lower growth in shipping demand. Next. I'm sure all my colleagues are going to be, and most of the day, talk of new regulations in shipping, net-net. Higher costs for ship owners, higher operating costs. Interest costs, we've had a decade of low to no, near zero interest costs, US dollar, that has bottomed out. US dollar LIBOR is moving upward. How fast, we can debate, but we know the direction is going to be up. Operating costs going up for ship owners, at least borrowing costs going up for ship owners. And lastly, and not least, we've been touched upon before, there's still huge amounts of shipbuilding capacity waiting to be used, ship owners to go out there and contract. So net-net, just summing up all these mega trends, what is happening? <coughs> Trade barriers, lower uh, growth in shipping volumes, increased operating costs, increased interest costs, huge shipbuilding co costs, uh, uh, capacity. So net-net, now my view, is that shipping one way or the other is going to be predominantly oversupplied going forward. It will give lower long-term returns in investments. Peaks there will be, but they will be short-lived. There will be volatility. So for an investor in shipping, just investing and going away is not the solution. We have to look at volatility, play the volatility, play <coughs> the capital play the capital markets by buying and selling ships at the right time. You know, <laughs> buy at the right time, sell at the right time. Gentlemen, ladies, thank you very much. Thank you, Arjun. Congratulations. All right, Mr. Batra, you've laid the challenge down to us. When is the right time? And I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Wilkins, at the end, I believe, of Intertanko to speak next on when do you think the right time is? And where do you see the 
big issues as representative of one of the major NGOs, shipping organizations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Clay, and uh, thank you, Arjun, for the, for the introduction, I think. It was interesting to note that um, most speakers have touched upon some of the environmental issues today because, you know, if we look at the top seven issues that Interteco are facing with, the top two of those are environmentally focused. Uh, the Ballast Water Convention uh, and uh, the 2020 discussion of fuel availability and quality discussion. Um, I'll start with a slightly overriding um, uh, comment because Clay suggested I should talk about the regulations. Now, I think overriding what we're seeing because we're up at this sort of level now, uh, talking about these uh, impending legislati legislative changes, um, one for this year and, and one for 2020, I, I think what we must remember is that the regulatory process perhaps needs some form of um, consideration in the future. I think it needs to be um, potentially overhauled. Uh, our members certainly spend a lot of time considering how to implement these new pieces of legislation. And I would say two things to the regulators, and then I'll talk about these two issues. Very briefly, I think we need to move away from setting idealistic targets um, without full consideration of the practical realities of those targets. The second point is the assigning of full liability for the implementation of these targets and these regulatory requirements is always assigned to the ship owner. I think more responsibility needs to be assigned to the other parties um, that are responsible for not just environmental legislation but safety legislation as well. And what I'm talking about here is the regulator uh, at the port state, uh, the governing bodies uh, that are responsible for enforcing it. Okay, so that's my little mantra. That's my, I'll get off my soapbox now and I'll talk about two, two challenges that we see. We have what we consider to be a doom and gloom panel, but actually there are some practical side of things and there's some practical things that we can do uh, and what we're doing at Intertanko for, uh, for all, and on behalf of our members is ensuring that we have um, practical guidance out there to implement both the Ballast Water Convention and the 2020 um, low sulfur fuel requirements. If we look at the ballast water side of things first, we've challenged the IMO. We've challenged the IMO with this 2017 date. When we came out of 2016, we had put on the table the concept that our, our members and the industry at large needed additional time. This wasn't a classic dragging of feet from the industry. This is a practical reality. We have two pieces of legislation in place. The IMOs legislation, which has just moved the goalposts with a new type approval regime for ballast water treatment systems. And then we have the second unilateral legislation in the US. If an owner is going to invest, as we heard from Henrietta, half a million to 1.5 million in a new ballast water treatment systems, you want that system to work, and you want that system to be compliant now and in the future with any regulatory regime. So it's only fair to suggest that actually maybe we should be giving them maybe an extra year or two. So maybe 2017 will not be the implementation date for this convention. Let's see in July. On the 2020 discussion, well, again, let's talk about the practical implementation side of things. What can we do to uh, assist the industry? Now, let's take away the, the commercial and financial discussions that we're going to have of scrubbers versus LNGs, for example, and talk about the enforcement, the compliance. We saw when ECAS came into force in 2015 and the shift to 0.1%, we saw about five-month delay in all the major bunker delivery ports in the world, making sure they had sufficient and ample supply. We can anticipate something similar when it comes to 2020. 
And I think what we've got to do is ensure that the regulators and the enforcers, whether that's through IMO or on a regional basis, are aware of that and aware of the predicament that they're putting the ship owners in. Maybe some form of soft entry or practical entry into, into force is, is going to be required. Those are my two sort of opening gambits, Clay. I'm sorry I took a little Good. bit longer than I thought. Uh, by the way, I'd like to encourage, thanks, Tim, very much. I would like to encourage the members of the panel to question one another and to react to one another's statements. Uh, we'd like to keep this as sort of a free-flowing discussion and not, not simply, uh, 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 and this, by the way, was Tim's suggestion, uh, that we try to talk to each other about some of these things while we're up here in the few minutes we have left. Uh, I would like to ask... Uh, Joe, to uh, uh, in view of what you've just heard, I realize that you're going to talk about something entirely different, a little bit like uh, Monty Python, I think. Uh, and now for something entirely different, we're going to get from you uh, a, a P&I Club uh, executive's version of what's going to happen. Well, you're very kind, actually, Claire. I didn't think that I looked like John Cleese, actually, but uh, perhaps I do. Um, Don't mention the war. Don't mention the war, no, indeed. Um, well, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, Arjun, you referred to the subject of digitalization, which I take to mean the impact of information technology on the larger global scene. And uh, that is what I'm going to try and speak about very briefly. Um, those that know me well, such as you, Clay, will have a reaction of, 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 um, uh, of unbridled <laughs> hilarity mixed with... Uh, with, with silent awe, the fact that I d am in, uh, engaging as the, the subject of information technology in the sense that my um, previous career hasn't been distinguished by a towering command of IT issues, but obviously if I'm talking about it, I must have learned a great deal in a very short period of time. Um, but I, I would say this, I would say this, it is obviously uh, a very important dimension to everything that we're increasingly doing in shipping, and it has uh, insurance implications, of course. Um, the world of big data and connectivity brings with it, obviously, great opportunity in the sense of um, uh, the, uh, the use of big data to improve uh, shipping uh, activity, the use of blockchain technology, for example. Is this actually working? Can you hear me? Oh, yes. It's oh, on. right. Good. Okay. Uh, to improve uh, various aspects of uh, logistics. Um, the use of AI to cr create autonomous shipping. I understand that there's a general belief in the shipping industry at the moment that that is indeed possible, but of course that the world isn't quite ready for it. And uh, in that particular context, from a P&I and insurance uh, perspective, the question of what liability regimes you'd apply in regard to unmanned ships is, of course, very important going forward. Uh, the downsides, obviously, are, are, are there too. The multiplication of uh, the potential for cyber risks. And um, so far as cover is concerned in regard to cyber risk, the marine insurance dimension to, this, to these growing trends. And I have to say that the issue of cyber risk as such has been a, a focus of our industry, I think, only relatively recently. Um, but it has become a very large concern. From the marine insurance perspective, um, if there is a, an accidental uh, cyber incident um, created by a hacking event or something of that kind that is not motivated by a war or terrorism um, intention, then most Hull and P&I policies will cover the consequences of that uh, in the ordinary way. If there is a, a cyber risk created or a, a loss created by 
a cyber attack that is motivated as part of a, uh, an act of war or uh, an act of terrorism, then of course that doesn't apply in the ordinary way to cover available under more, most war risk policies. There is a specific exclusion um, under those policies uh, for such things. And I think that uh, the, the, the industry generally, because there haven't been many of these attacks or these incidents that have taken place in recent years, is somewhat behind the curve in developing um, responses to that. Um, but I think that on the regulatory front, the, uh, the spectre of growing cyber risk will create an expansion, perhaps, of uh, international regulation, more regulation in regard to the manner in which ship owners are expected. This gentleman is gesturing. Uh, I, I know he is. Uh, is, it, is there, I can hear you through the microphone, but apparently. What's that? Is the mic off? It's, I was told that it's on, actually. Maybe you should just hold it closer. It's definitely on. Now, now you've you sabotaged your own microphone. So well, why don't I use yours, <laughs> yeah, Clay? Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I don't know where I was, actually, at this stage. Um, but, I, I, you know, obviously cyber, cyber risk in relation to the growth of uh, digitalization is an increasingly important issue that the industry generally needs to face. Um, my basic uh, argument is that marine insurers at the moment, and I come from that particular side of our industry, um, are conscious of this to some extent, and that in the ordinary way, uh, most uh, marine hull and P&I covers will deal with accidental cyber <coughs> risk um, in, in, in a, as a matter of a, a covered risk. Uh, but if such a risk were to arise in the context of a war um, act or, or an act of terrorism, then that would be quite different. Okay. Can, I, can I interrupt you now? Yes. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. I did anyway. Thank, thank you, Joe. I, I, I think now that we, I, you may wonder what all of us are up here for because we're all talking about different and seemingly unrelated things, but in fact, they're not unrelated. Uh, these are among the challenges that the industry faces, and although they're coming from entirely different directions, our next speaker, who I'd like to call on, uh, Mr. Way of BIMCO, uh, I, I would like you to uh, comment, if you could, as I, as I may have indicated, BIMCO uh, has a long and very distinguished history uh, of creating documents for the maritime industry, and you alluded to that in the discussions that we had uh, before we all got together here today uh, by email. Um, the, can you hear me over there? Are there any problems from the, uh, my colleagues in the international registries? Okay, you can hear. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that your documentary committee does, and indeed the whole of BIMCO, is produce standard contracts, forms, clauses, and the like for the shipping industry. And you've been doing that for well over 100 years. Um, you just heard what uh, Joe Hughes had to say, and you heard what the early other speakers had to say. The flood tide of, of regulation that is, uh, and Henrietta took us through this very well during her presentation, uh, that is now, uh, I wouldn't say engulfing us, but is, is very much a part of the world in which we work and live, uh, is, undoubtedly going to result in a lot of changes in existing BIMCO documentation. While this may seem like a very dry subject, it is the lifeblood of a great deal of this industry. Uh, we heard uh, from our distinguished speaker this morning uh, from, from the, the, the city government that uh, arbitration is a very important part of what you do. 
Well, arbitration is also a very important part of, of the, the clausing that uh, uh, BIMCO has drafted over many years uh, in, in, in numerous charter parties and other documents. Uh, again, it's, it's a very much practical importance to all of us. Tell us, if you could, very briefly about what, uh, where you see BIMCO doing, and, and I would be particularly interested because I, am, I follow the work of your documentation committee very closely. Where does the money come from going forward for the kind of work that BIMCO is going to have to be doing? Uh, thank you very much, Clay. Actually, I, I can brief because the time is limited. Actually, the, the money comes from actually thanks to our member, their contribution, because BIMCO, we collected their membership, and then we just, as the benefit for industry, we set up the documentary committee, and uh, their mission actually is developing or revise the standard the contrast with the clauses, which is why they're used by the industry. And I would like to jump back a little bit to the topic here today. We are discussing about the geopolitical risks. Uh, one typical example which happened yesterday, if you look at the North Korea, they just the public criticized the Chinese government. What the hell are you doing? So this is the political geopolitics is definitely infected our, our industry. And I'm sure some of our Chinese colleagues, they have the bloody lessons in the middle of this year. I think it's the, the coal import has been completely blocked from North Korea to China, and it's, it, it's a triggered chaos. So this is the risk we have to face with and we try to deal with. And back to the Binko's documents, yes, we closely monitor what's going on with the regulation issues. And uh, hopefully we, we would like to have the IMO as the unique platform where we will follow because shipping is international. We don't want to see the regional or national regulations will make our problems. That is a huge challenge, which the typical example we see as the balance of water and also the MRV could be the second one. And even, you know, the, the, the subsecurity is premature now, but we will see. And uh, the key issue, if we talk about uh, the low surfer, the cap, I think the key issue is, is how we could ensure the same level playing field. This is quite a challenge. Because in front of, there are two different kinds of the ship owner. If we are talking ship owner here, one is the compliance ship owner, the other is non-compliance ship owner. And how we could ensure and make sure that they will have the same level to compete with. There was two critical stages here. I think the first is how we could ensure unique the compliance. The second is how we could ensure that actually is the effective enforcement. That's why Binko, we, we, we strongly endorse you know, the MyPod and Nexus, which encourage all the national, regional, the government body to make sure the enforcement is robust and ensure enforcement is actually accepted to everybody. Otherwise, we will not achieve the sustainable development anyway. And uh, as to our regulation side, sorry, the BINCO documentary side, all of our practical clauses as well as the documents, we have to reflect this kind of practice into our daily chartering the documents. That's ranging from the bunker crosses, the veg oil crosses for time charter and the void charter, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the reality we're facing. We have to deal with. Yeah. 
Thank you. Okay, Glenn. thank you very much. Uh, uh, now, now, uh, what I would like to do is ask, uh, uh, Vincent, um, you represent and work for a very large classification society. And we're seeing a lot of change. We're seeing LNG come on, maybe as a fuel. It was a first LNG bunkering in Singapore was last week, I believe. Um, one of the things that was almost a mantra for class societies and yours in particular is cost reductions through better design, new technology. You've heard about what's been discussed today and, and we will discuss probably throughout the day on the tide of regulation. Uh, you asked a question when we communicated with each other. Do we meet that tide with retrofitting, scrapping, as I said, or purchase, or new building? Yep. What do you think? I think this is a very interesting question uh, from a class society, of course. Could you use the microphone? I'm not sure oh. you're, you're, you're up. Okay, good. Uh, it's working. I think uh, people can hear me. Um, I think it's an interesting question uh, from a class society, for sure, that uh, we always encourage uh, new buildings that will actually help our business. But uh, on the other hand, if you go back to history, look at the uh, bunker when we come to the all-time high. A lot of uh, owners, operators are driving towards uh, slow steaming, and uh, by doing slow steaming, they're retrofitting their, 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 their ships in order to accommodate the uh, uh, for cost saving. But today, if you look at the, uh, the, all the uh, new regulatory compliance that uh, we've, been, we've been discussing this morning, uh, such as uh, ballast water management and uh, uh, emission control and things like that, I see this is probably the second wave of uh, moving towards uh, another uh, retrofitting, you know, in order to preserve your, the, uh, the asset value of your ships and also remain uh, competitive in the market. Probably ballast water management is not something that uh, nobody can resist, and it's a matter of how much you have to put into uh, installing a, a new system. But on the uh, emission control, probably there are a few alternatives, uh, like uh, uh, using scrubbers, for example, or, or using low sulfur fuel, or maybe switch to LNG. But if it's existing ships, to shift, shift to LNG probably is not a good idea. Uh, at all. Um, but all in all, this is very much depends on the uh, fuel price level. You know, how does it go? So I don't think anybody has a crystal ball at all. However, what is the decision to, to, to make a, a decision on a, uh, retrofitting your ship? I think there's a few areas you need to really, really take into consideration. For example, is the age of your vessels. How long do you believe your vessel is going to run for uh, 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 for a lifetime. Um, if you, let's say, if you take an example, that if your ship is uh, 15 years old today, uh, by 2022, the ballast water management come, uh, kicks in, then the, should you invest into it? By that time, your ship is already 20 years old. Uh, could you be able to make the investment and operate for another five years? So this is all a matter of uh, financial calculations. Uh, what kind of ROI you're going to get. On the other hand, I just talk about the uh, fuel price. That's uh, also something that uh, you, you, could, you should look into. I don't think there's a, uh, there's a formula to it. But if the fuel price is continues like to today's level, maybe retrofit is not something that you uh, uh, need to take into considerations. Uh, 
You mean you're against retrofitting under the under circumstance like that, or do you think it's maybe not such a good idea? Uh, depends on the age of the ship. Again, I mean this is a combination of factors, right? Um, if the fuel price is uh, staying stable, then the uh, retrofitting is is uh, is a matter of uh, how long you want to run the ship for. We've got a lot of expertise in the audience. I see some people from Columbia Ship Management here. Does anybody want to take a, tackle that question of uh, what, what, what's, what's the best course, depending on the kind of ship? I realize it's a ridiculous question, by the way, but it's a, it, it's a question that you know, provokes a lot of thought, particularly because of the supply of LNG in the world. Yeah, I'm talking about existing ships. Right? You're talking about existing ships. Yeah, existing yeah. ships. But if it, and also, also, you need to take into consideration of the new building price, too. You know, if the new building price is staying in all-time low, then the, uh, I mean, as low as today, whether we should look into getting a, a new buildings in place of the um, uh, of uh, putting additional investment into the uh, existing vessels. You know, those those are the those are the few criteria I think we need to look into uh, before we uh, decide whether we should go for the. Uh, uh, any any questions from the floor? Looking around, I don't see any questions from the floor. Everybody looks very reserved. But there is one on the end. We're getting to you. Tim. Well, as, well, as people start uh, considering what questions they can ask, just three remarks, three things that spring to mind as my fellow panelists were, were talking. Uh, firstly, on cyber um, and, and the administrative burden of new regulations. I think for cyber in particular, that does not lend itself to mandatory requirements, whether they're global or not. It, it simply is something that's changing too quickly. We talk about digitization, as our journal pointed out. Um, you know, and I'm sitting next to, to my colleague here from BIMCO, Intertanko, and BIMCO have worked very hard to ensure that the industry is, is, is issuing its own best practices on this because they need to change. They need to change quickly. We know how slow IMO's process can be. Um, yeah, that's one thing. Let's not try and move down that mandatory route. Point two is on this non-compliance with the 2020 thing. Now, we probably don't see it in the same way in regards to this concern over non-compliance. When ICA came in, we had about a 95% compliance rate in 2015. Um, and, I, and I think those non-compliant elements, the 5%, it was marginal, and it was related to the supply of the fuel to those vessels. It was point, point 0.1 or point zero 0.09 or something like that. So it was very small non-compliance. What would overcome this, and it's quite rightly pointed out by Wayne here, is if we get some form of responsibility by the suppliers, make sure that the suppliers supply the correct fuel and the compliant fuel, then we will not have this, uh, this concern over compliance. And finally, I think nobody's mentioned the, the issue of seafarers, Clay, um, on this panel yet. No. Uh, we have unfortunately mentioned unmanned vessels and autonomous vessels under the digitization aspect, um, but I think we have some much more uh, near-term concerns uh, in this industry, in particular uh, for the tanker sector, where not just the shortage of seafarers in the future is a concern, uh, but the competency of the seafarers that are coming out of the colleges and, and, and academies today, uh, and whether or not they can meet the expectations, particularly for the tanker sector, um, in terms of competency. So I think that's something that perhaps we'd like to put a little marker in the sand uh, for this panel as well. Thank you, John. Well, thank you very much, Tim. And I think our time is up. Uh, thank you very much. Let's give the panel a round of applause. I apologize for having uh, made it so difficult for all of you. Uh, thank you again for listening.